would be remiss if I didn't give a quick plug to a couple of GBH podcasts. Innovation Hub, it's a great show and it's a great podcast. Um, Frontlines, Dispatch, we have a new season coming out very soon. And at Masterpiece Studio, if you're a Masterpiece fan, you'd like Masterpiece Studio. Anyway, but that's not what we're here about. We're here to talk about audience growth. Um, and I was very excited when Audio Boom asked me to moderate this panel because of the exciting people that they have brought together for this panel with a lot of knowledge about how to take your podcast and make it bigger. Um, so I'm going to introduce them very briefly, and then they're going to say a little bit about where they're coming from and what they do very quickly, and then we'll get into a discussion. I just want to say um, I'm going to leave a really nice chunk of time at the end for your questions, because I always find that you guys have the best questions and that you have stuff that you want to know and, and they can help you. Um, so down at the end is Rob Peterson, and Rob Peterson is the Director of Audience Acquisition um, for Audioboom, where he supervises the promotion of original and co-produced podcasts. And he is very currently into How I Built This. That's the podcast that he's been yeah. into. Um, sitting next to Rob is Tamar Abishai. Tamar is the host and producer of the art history podcast, The Lonely Palette. She is also a co-founder of the Boston-based independent podcast network, Hub and Spoke. Yay, Boston. She is currently obsessed with revolutions. That is the podcast she's listening to. Um, next to Samar is Mayan Plout. Mayan is the content strategist and podcast librarian of Radio Public. That is the coolest title ever. <laughs> and she is contributing writer for the Bella Collective. She listens to a lot, a lot of podcasts, as you might imagine. She is currently digging Heat and Light and Hollywood in Color. Um, yay, Mayan. Um, and then Nathan Otowski is the head of marketing at How Stuff Works down in Atlanta. And he is currently listening to, and always listening to, Stuff You Should Know. So um, why don't we start with Rob, you can talk a little bit about what you do, and sure. then we'll just go down. Hi everyone, uh, thank you Nina for moderating this panel, and thank you everyone for attending and being on it. Uh, my name is Rob Peterson, I am the Director of Audience Acquisition at Audioboom. Um, I started my, my career in radio, local radio on Long Island, made my way to network radio with uh, Cumulus Media. Uh, where I oversaw and uh, helped bring on their on-demand and podcasting development and shows. Uh, from there, I moved over to Audioboom as their director of audience acquisition, where, as Nina said, I'm uh, responsible for the growth of our original programming and some of our third-party sales shows. Um, what that means, because audience acquisition is kind of a weird title, um, is that I have to help grow the shows, obviously. The more listeners that we get, the better we do. Um, and that's through a variety of ways that we'll get into today, through uh, paid promotion and barter and, and all the fun stuff that we'll dive in deeper later. So thank you very much. Um, so I'm Tamar. Um, I, I produce uh, this show called The Lonely Palette, which aims to make art history uh, as accessible and unsnooty as you always wanted it to be. Um, and uh, my, my day job is actually in corporate finance, which shouldn't matter, but it actually kind of does for this panel. So we'll come back to that. Um, but. Uh, I, I wanted to be a radio producer, and I had been an art historian, and I didn't want to be an academic, and I kind of just kind of floated around for a little while, and I realized that there wasn't really any art history show yet, and so in order to practice being a radio producer, I, I tried to make one, um, and it actually ended up being something that a lot of people were pretty interested in, so 
that's the, the place that I'm in now and uh, completely independent and that's why we formed Hub and Spoke because we were all independent and we were lonely and we wanted to really try to help each other. And so here we are. Um, I'm Mayan Plout, as Nina said. I'm the content strategist and podcast librarian at Radio Public. Prior to working there, I worked in higher education at Oberlin College for almost seven years in social media marketing and content strategy. So I am one of you from before, but also now. Um, <laughs> at Radio Public, as far as I know, I'm the only podcast librarian in the world. I know this because we made up the job when I started working there. Um, and it is, in fact, a great job. I get to listen to podcasts pretty constantly, except when I'm at work where I can't actually listen and wait at the same time. Um, but yeah, so my, my content strategy and podcast librarian Eagle sort of takes on a couple of different forms. I work a lot internally with our own team building um, our biggest product, which is our uh, podcast listening app, but we also do a ton of user research with podcasters and listeners like all of you. Um, I'm also the behind the scenes writer for a lot of the things that we do, and the more I write, the more I realize that what I'm working on is helping people market their podcasts, um, both small and big, and figuring out creative ways to do so. Um, all of that uh, work at Oberlin had a lot to do with how do we creatively connect with the audiences that we want to have, currently have, and futurely need to have relationships with. So it's a very like long-term thing to have gone from um, admissions and internal communications and alumni communication at Oberlin to how we find the people that we want to find in the world of podcasting now. So I think that's it for now, but excited to be here. Awesome. I'm Nathan Otoski. I am the head of marketing at How Stuff Works. Uh, I've been in marketing for about 18 years, uh, really started out uh, with tech, entertainment, and uh, um, other companies uh, like Cox Communications, Earthlink, if you remember, uh, getting those discs in the mail. Some of you might, some of you might not, but that really started out my, um, my digital career, even though it was uh, a direct marketing agency that I worked for. Um, to this day, I really find what I learned back then in terms of finding audiences uh, relevant, even though it's uh, on a digital scale rather than, um, you know, making people insert a disc and, uh, you know, getting the internet through a sound. Um, anyway, uh, so I've been at How Stuff Works for three years, and my team and I, uh, we work together to develop uh, marketing strategies and implement them to connect audiences with our content. Um, so we wanted to start out by kind of taking the temperature of the room and seeing where everybody was coming from. And I wonder if you could just raise your hand if you're an independent podcaster. Nice. Um, raise your hand if you're podcasting for an educational institution or a nonprofit. Okay. And raise your hand if you are like working for an, insti an educational institution or a nonprofit and you're thinking about podcasting and trying to see if you're going to get into it. It's okay, great people, <laughs> that's good, okay. So we wanted to kind of start the conversation a little bit big and then narrow in. Um, there are like 550,000 podcasts in the universe <laughs> and growing. So uh, with all that different media that's happening, I was excited to get this group together because they come from very different points of view. We have two people who work for bigger um, sort of networks. We have uh, someone who works for like a discoverability app and is, is on that piece. And then we have someone who is a, a podcaster herself who also has like formed a network on her own. So um, 
Let's start, I, I think, with maybe with Rob. I'm wondering when a new podcaster comes to you, like with the idea, with the show, and, and they're like, here we are, where do you even begin? Like, how do you start, right? What's, what do you do? I'm talking nuts and bolts here. Sure, yeah. Um, if I said like this, can you hear me? Okay, thank you. Hard to hunch over. Um, I would say the, the number one thing is get, get content, right? And that's pretty obvious, but I think a lot of people think that, and I did this myself, I have a podcast that I don't do anymore for the purpose of the fact that I just sat down in front of a mic and just spoke and no one was interested in what I had to say. So basically, I thought I was Bill Burr and not even close to that. Um, so basically, that's the thing you have to figure out, right? What you wanna say, what you wanna do, what the message you wanna get across, and just kind of understand what, what you're trying to, Tell your audience and who your audience is. I think that's the most important thing to, to focus on immediately. That's getting in front of a mic, figuring out how to speak into a mic, figuring out how to get comfortable there, and then kind of telling your message. So go through four or five iterations. I know that seems like a lot, but it's just gonna get you comfortable. Send it to your closest friends and family. Make sure that they, they tell you the goods and the bads of it. Um, everyone's gonna tell you it's great. Um, that's very nice of them, but no offense to you guys, that's probably a lie. Um, so just figure that out and know what you want to say and then when you come to a network like ours We just want to see a plan of what the show is going to be You know, we're willing to to listen to everybody obviously But we want to make sure that you're cohesive in your strategy your message and that you have something to say You know a celebrity podcast where they're just kind of talking into a mic might do great initially But you start to see those numbers really dive because they may not be as interesting as they seem on camera or anything like that So if you have a clear message and you have a clear audience you're looking to reach um, then we go from there and, and you know the, the secondary most important part of your, after your message is the branding in and of itself. So it's getting a great logo out there, something that's gonna stand out in discovery apps. You know, like Nina said, 500,000 podcasts, that's a lot. So don't think that you're gonna be number one on the charts immediately, hopefully you do. You know, that's obviously the goal, but um, the charts are, are, we'll talk about this later, but the charts are what they are. They're not the best and they're not accurate to what, what your goals are. So set your goals, know that 1,000 listens is amazing and then you're just gonna grow from there. Um, but yeah, I would say message, 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 and, and the content will, will come and you'll figure and get your feet out. Rob, when you say like art is really important, what do you mean by that? I mean, what is your guys' experience? Like how important is like the artwork for actually <coughs> connecting with an audience? Yeah, I think it's important. You know, you're looking through a lot of apps on your phone, especially that's where this discoverability is, and, and you're seeing like a square that you can't, would you be able to see artwork like this from that far away? Probably not. So, you know, you need to be able to get your, I would say people want to probably throw an image up there. It's probably not the most important thing. You want to get your name out there, obviously. Um, but, you know, use colors that are going to stand out. Look at the charts or look at other podcasts and what they're doing and then kind of mock things up. Take screenshots, put your logo into where you want people to find your show and see where it stands against other, other shows as well. That's what uh, my suggestion would be. Um, Samara, I'm wondering um, when you when you began the Lonely Palette, like where did you, how did you think about who you were going to reach and how you were going to reach anyone, starting from like the ground, starting from nowhere? Like, what was your plan? How did you start? Uh, it's funny, you know, when you do something every day for two and a half years, you totally forget what the origin story is because it keeps getting eclipsed by the new experience. And so I was talking to my husband about it and I was like, I set out to do an art history podcast, right? And she was like, uh, actually no, like you wanted to practice your audio chops, which is actually, so you know, when I, when I actually released the first episode, I wasn't even on iTunes yet because I didn't know how. I mean, I just, I told a bunch of my friends and I emailed them and I said, please tell the world that this is something that I'm gonna do and I'm gonna release an episode every two weeks and it's gonna be great. <laughs> and that 
you know, very quickly, I realized how much time hustling to get out the product. You know, it's like, I, I completely agree that content is 100% of what makes a really good podcast, and also hustling it is 100% of how you get it out there. And that's why it's been a pretty stressful few years. <laughs> yeah. And when you say hustling it, what do you mean yeah. by that? Like, I mean, it. I wanted to get on every social media platform. I actually barely was on Twitter before. I didn't even I didn't even gram before uh, <laughs> before this show. And I I started to just see what would happen if I led with the brand. And I always felt like it's funny, like you know, a couple times early on when I started to get some write ups, I didn't feel like like seeing my own name in print mattered. It was about seeing the lonely palette in print. And you know, I know who I knew who I was. I was just you know trying to figure this out. But seeing the lonely palette out there made it feel like it was a thing, and that was really exciting. But the actual kind of early early stages of the process was just I want to make something like like what I hear, and. That means that you know if if I'm good at this and I think I'm good at this, you know, so if I'm actually good at this, then it means that I have a good ear for the pacing and really the sound, and I want it to sound professional. And I don't just want to get you know I want it, I want the writing to be really sound, but the writing I felt like was already something that I knew how to do. I didn't know how to edit. I didn't know how to write for radio. I didn't know how to um, hear my own voice yet. That took a, a lot to just kind of listen to my own voice endlessly until I got over the that mortification and could actually be comfortable with it and not, you know, not be bothered by that. And it just was a really, really slow process. You know, like the whole, the first time I was on an, an iTunes chart was really, really exciting, but it took like a year and a half. And I, looking back on it, I wouldn't want to have gone viral. Like that's a really scary thing to do because then there's nowhere to go but down. You know, it was like every step of it was a really slow accumulation of kind of learning as I went. And the early stuff nobody heard because no one was listening yet, so it could be crap, and I could still <laughs> just kind of put it out little by little. Um, do you remember like the first episode where you were like, "Oh, this is a podcast," uh, where you were putting it together and, and you had kind of a moment? Um. It was actually the first episode, <laughs> but that, you know, I mean, you know, it was like, uh, it was the first, like, I felt like I had accomplished what I wanted to do. And then there were a few episodes after that that I was like, okay, how do I keep it at that place? And that was scary. But I felt like the, I felt like episode one was, you know, like they say with musicians, the first, you, you have, you know, 25 years to write your first album and 11 months to write your second one. So that's kind of how it felt, was that like, you know, everything had been poured into the very beginning, and then keeping that going was the was the tough part. And in terms of like tips um, for just getting more audience members, when you're coming from nowhere and you have like a certain small circle, like what were some of the practical things you were doing? Was it like posting the episodes on Facebook, or like mm -hmm. how did what did you actually see results from, and how how did that work? Um, getting a website right away, having a really professional looking place that I could point people to, so that even if I wasn't entirely sure about the content, I knew that it was being delivered in a way that had some finish to it. And just kind of getting that piece of it out there. I, I don't understand how people put out podcasts without um, websites, <laughs> you know, like without a place to actually link back to. It just, it doesn't seem, it doesn't strike me, and maybe I'm a little old fashioned, but it doesn't strike me as, as, as professional. Mm -hmm. um. So Nathan, I just want to turn to you. You had like a network with a lot of different 
podcast, but that cover a lot of different subjects. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that we have talked about before is a way to grow your audience is cross promotion. So the best way of growing your audience is putting your podcast on another podcast or like of having a mention. With right. I, I'm wondering if you can talk with that experience. So you have like every podcast from like um, stuff you should know to like Ken Jennings podcast mm -hmm. to like all sorts of random you right. know like topics. How yeah. does cross promotion work for you guys, and what what have you seen that's worked and what hasn't? And, and Maya, mm -hmm. I, I think you can talk to that too as well. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so we we currently have about fifty podcasts. So the biggest one being stuff you should know. And so what we what we tend to focus on um, is uh, testing. And that's you know actually if there's one thing I learned from my early days of marketing, it's test, 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 and find out what what works. And so. A lot of what we'll start out with is, you know, on the bigger side. Even if it's a, a niche show, um, let's let's get it on stuff you should know. Let's get it on stuff you missed in history class. Let's be intentional and let's see what works and let's see what sort of audience sticks because, you know, anybody could listen to stuff you should know, but not everybody's going to listen to like an anime podcast. So, but there are people who listen to stuff you should know who love anime. So it's just finding those people. And so um, we start out big, and then we, you know, we see what works, and then we move on and we become a little more focused, and we look at, so where's a match within the network? Um, and so then we'll look at that as well. But then, um, because we do have so much, uh, you know, with, with a lot of our larger shows, we're able to take some of that uh, internal cross-promotion and look to some of our partners uh, who maybe have a show that matches a little bit better. So. I'll talk to Rob. Uh, I work with uh, Maggie at PRX, the marketing person there, and, and we'll exchange promos so that you know maybe this show is a little too niche for our audience, and so I'll go over to some of our partners, which I actually find is one of the most refreshing things uh, being in marketing, where podcasting is still so new, where we can still all be friends, where people aren't <laughs> yelling at each other or like secretly, you know. Like, you know, that sort of thing. It's, it's been so nice coming from, you know, I've worked in the video game industry where no one talked to each other, where Rob and I, you know, talk at least once a month about what's coming up, what sort of partnerships we can do. Um, you know, I talk to, you know, every time there's a convention or something, I'm talking to somebody within the industry about, hey, what's working for you? So I do find that very refreshing and great. But then, um, you know, some of the other things that we can do, uh, which we found have really worked um, and has been kind of a weird, you know, it's, it, it hasn't been expected, is uh, guest spots. So being able to take a, uh, you know, like we recently had um, one of our LA-based comedy shows, uh, it's called Culture Kings, they talk about uh, culture, race, uh, the NBA, in comedy, of course, they're uh, upright citizens brigade com comedians, and um, they came to us like we'd really love to partner with one of the uh, headquartered shows in Atlanta and get a little promotion out of it. And they kind of feel like they're out on an island in Los Angeles. So, um, actually, they had just done a uh, a show about debunking conspiracies, and our conspiracy podcast stuff they don't want you to know had heard that. <laughs> and was like, oh, we'd love to partner with them. And let's. So they actually came on their show and did a, uh, did a conspiracy show about 
there's a conspiracy about Michael Jordan the first time he retired, and why did he retire? Maybe he was forced out. Um, and it was great. It, I mean, the chemistry was there. It really worked well. And you wouldn't necessarily think conspiracy and you know more of a cultural comedian-based podcast would really mesh. But it turned into like at the end they were sending uh, rap beefs back and forth <laughs> through social media, and it ended up being um, the highest episode for stuff they don't want you to know downloaded for October and also gave uh, Culture Kings a great lift. So, you know, just experimenting and knowing that, you know, even though you might think, oh, that's not a great fit, just try it. It's, you know, at least you know you tried it and then you can step back and say, no, oh, that didn't work, but at least we tried. Yeah, and you've been writing notes. Oh, I've been writing so many notes. So, like, all of the advice you've been hearing so far is really good, but I know that very few of you here are probably in networks already and are probably, rather than top-down, able to go to your biggest possible show, rather going from yourself and your like small but mighty audience up. Um, so I'm going to sort of draw together both what Rob was saying around knowing yourself and what Nathan was saying around working together. Right now, like everyone in this room is your peer. Like, talk to everybody and learn what their show is and figure out what your connection is. Because if you know who you are and they know who they are, there's a chance that you can figure out how to work together and spread your show from audience to audience. I love, love, love hearing that guesting is like a way in which you're hearing that this is working really well. Because where I come from when I talk about audience development is actually less so people who already listen to podcasts, which is where um, podcasts cross. cross podcast crossed promotion works best, um, is rather to think about where your um, future listeners, aka people who've never heard a podcast before, are going to come from first. So um, I also loved the way that you were talking about websites. I look at so many podcasts on a regular basis, and so few of them have websites. And the ones that have websites are not necessarily always updated. And your website is your front door for people who don't know what podcasts are. Um, the first thing they're going to do is not go to a podcast listening app because they don't necessarily know what that is yet. They're going to Google the name of your podcast and hopefully land on a website. And that website needs to have a guide on how people can listen to your show. <laughs> please, 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 if you have one takeaway from what we're talking about today, make sure that people who land on your site, which you need to have, also know how to listen to your podcast for the first time. So, Do you know, is there a good example that you can send people to? Like, who does it well? I know Ira Glass has a little like video about how to download. Um, so I actually wrote a guide on how to write how to listen guides recently, and the two examples that I use in there, one of them is um, our friend Jelinka, who's sitting in the back there. Um, 70 Million has an excellent page, because they rightfully identify that the people who they want to listen to their show the most definitely have no idea what a podcast is. Um, so there's this great, and I also um, always bring up the Rashomon podcast, which is a podcast in which a story is told by every member, like one particular moment is told by every member of the same family, and then it's like spliced together into a narrative. Um, she has a very excellent, like it's a, just a step-by-step -step guide, and it sounds exactly like her, which is why I um, always use it as an example. So those two, check them out. Um, where was I going with this? Oh, um, so the, the knowing yourself and your working togetherness, like I would challenge all of you, if like you're at your first panel of the whole conference, my challenge to you is to figure out at least one connection while you're here that you can do something together. And like by all means, have it be someone who's aligned with your show. If you're talking about ancient history, find another ancient history person, that's great. You're gonna reach the exact audience that you're looking for. However, I challenge you to try and find somebody who is like 
one step off from you. So if you're ancient history, maybe find someone who talks about books. If you're, um, I don't know, just like one step off because that is where you're like audience sharing. You're going to get two slightly different people who might not know that your show exists. It's more likely that the, the same things will find each other, but I'm looking at the same off by one. Um, the more the web of what we are thinking about. So I think that was a little roundabout, but that's where I'm going at for now. <laughs> um, you guys, uh, uh, Nate and, and Rob, Nathan and Rob, um, have big networks, but I, I was curious a little bit about the origins of Hub and Spoke, because it's a, a really interesting model of like audience growth and gathering together some independent podcasters to sort of spread the word, and I, I wonder if you could take us through like how you guys came together, why you came together, and, and how it's worked, actually. Or, or not worked, I don't know. Oh. <laughs> I think it's worked. So far, I, so good. I, um, I mean, we have, we have pins. <laughs> pins is like the sign. We have swag. So there's a, an incredibly robust radio community in Boston. And I, when I was first kind of invite, I was added to a listserv by a friend of mine who doesn't even live in Boston anymore called the Sonic Soiree. And it's just, you know, anytime a, a job or, or, you know, somebody uh, promoting a new show comes out, it goes through the listserv. And there's also a monthly potluck where we all get together and we listen to each other's shows and just like totally, it's like connecting and networking and also um, feedback and, and polishing. And it's a really awesome space. And when I first started it, I was, when I first started going, I was terrified because I was surrounded by, by radio producers. And it's interesting because in the last couple of years, it's really become very podcast producer heavy. Um, and so that's, you know, we're, we're kind of figuring out that shift as it's happening also. Um, but when I put out the first episode of The Lonely Palette, I, I emailed the listserv, you know, I swallowed hard and I, I sent it out. And I got an email back from a very lovely gentleman, Wade Rausch, who had listened to it, and he said, I really like what you're doing. I'm putting out my own show soonish, and uh, I would love to just kind of have you as, as like a, a buddy that we can talk about this stuff with. And he invited me to be on his show. Um, he interviewed me because he was doing an episode on the future of art museums and asked if, if, you know, and we we had an hour and a half long interview where we got to the depths of each other's souls and it was really <laughs> great, you know, it's like by the end of it we were really tight. And, um, and I put out my show, he put out his show, and, and I don't know, maybe eight months later, um, he emailed me again and said, you know, we should we should do something, like we should get together. Like we don't know what podcasting is, you know, the Wild West, that's what everybody's calling it. And, you know, why not? why not form a collective? Why not, you know, it's not a network, we don't have to worry about money, we don't have to worry about, you know, nonprofit status or a board. Let's just get a, a landing page. Let's pay for, for some branding and start something, pick up some more shows and see what happens. And the entire time, it's just been, let's see what happens. And we now have six shows, um, including Ministry of Ideas, which, you know, like it really helps the more people you know are also pretty entrepreneurial. And um, we've just kind of, this, this whole time, there's still a sense of let's see what happens. But it's amazing how when you, you pay for some branding, which is pretty much all we've really put money into, branding and pins, um, <laughs> is that we now have a thing. You know, it's like when, um, when the Bellow Collective uh, released their, their 100 outstanding pieces of audio from 2016 to 2017, they do it every year, 
and I was fortunate enough to, to be on it both times. But the first year, under my name, was independent. And we realized that that doesn't look good right now, that we're trying to figure out, you know, or at least at the time, in 2016, we felt like independent, the more shows that are out there, the more that that says that you're just kind of floating on your own, and maybe it's not good. You know, maybe it's, uh, you know, I mean, it's nice to be on a list, but otherwise, to be an independent podcaster in a time when, oh, you've got a podcast, so does my cousin. Oh, great, Me, I'm thinking about starting one too. It'll be great, we'll all have podcasts. You know, it was nice to feel like, like having the name independent didn't feel like it was helping me. And the second time I got on it, it said Hub and Spoke underneath. And it felt like being part of something that was only something that we decided would be a thing. You know, it, <laughs> it was like, but it, it helped to really differentiate us. And as we're figuring out what it means, you know, we're talking about criteria and, and what we, you know, we're very, we are very selective about the shows that we want to add, not because we want to be, you know, elite, elitist in any way, but because we're doing something similar. We want to put out high quality shows that put a lot of energy into production value, a lot of energy into having a host that feels really compelling. And it means that we're, we are able to kind of build this this brand and this platform that maybe we might be able to turn into a network. You know, like there's there's this see what happens feeling. Everybody's really excited about it. Um, and we help each other out. We have a Slack channel and we're just excited for each other all the time. You know, whenever somebody gets on a list or gets, you know, some sort of recognition somehow or even just puts out a new episode, you know, like we get a little like rocket ship or a little like party <laughs> emoji, you know, but it's like, it, it just feels like we have a community all the time that's supporting us. And that's really helpful when otherwise you just feel like you're, you're floating out in space and you're all alone. You know, everybody, almost all of our shows are, are pretty much one man, one woman bands. And so it just feels like we have a community. Yeah, so it's given you the sense of community of like help both creatively, you are able to like bounce ideas off of each other. And I'm wondering like from the sort of Sorry, the practical sense, like, have you seen it help with audience numbers? Like, have you seen, like, you guys? Well, so I actually, I told a great story at Third Coast, and now Barry's here, and I can actually <laughs> say it here. Um, we, we make sure, and I should have said this, one of the criteria is that you, you do a little advertising spot. You know, you plug someone else's Hub and Spoke show in every one of your episodes. So we're always kind of working for that, you know, infinite growth potential. And um, uh, Barry Lamb from Hi-Fi Nation is here, and he, he was on an IndieWire list of, of top 50 podcast episodes. Um, and that episode happened to have plugged The Lonely Palette. <laughs> and I actually, you know, we were all really happy for him, but I saw a bump too. And I looked at, you know, my, and I was like, oh, wow, why is that? And I was like, oh, it's that episode. Like, that's, you know. And that was so cool. It was really, really exciting that, you know, like that's a, that's a very specific example of, of you know, a good, a good press mention. But in general, I feel like it's not even just, oh, soonish I heard about it on Lonely Palette, Hi-Fi Nation, I heard about it on Ministry of Ideas. It's, oh, Hub and Spoke, I've heard of those shows. And that's actually, I feel like, has, has been more, um, more of a material bump 
that people feel like our collective, it's like, you know, you see on Twitter, I'm gonna listen to some, you know, at Hub and Spoke shows, and it's like, <laughs> again, we just, we made a thing <laughs> that we, you know, just to, just to, like, we said it was and it was, and that was really exciting. Um, so there's lots of buzzwords in podcasting, and one of them is discoverability. <laughs> I hate that word, but I'm gonna use it. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I wanted to just talk a little bit about discoverability. And one, one of the things actually that I've hear, heard all of you guys talk a little bit about is press coverage. Like you all have been able to get into, you know, getting that IndieWire, like listing, getting on the, in the Bellow Collective, like listing. And I'm wondering, how, how do you do that? Like how do you even get press? How do you go about cultivating those relationships? Like what are you doing to get in the newsletters, all that stuff? Whoever wants to take that can... I'll start happily, um, in part because uh, so much of podcast marketing to me is helping people who are helping themselves. Um, and I just circled it really big on my note card because I wrote it down as soon as we started talking that I wanted to make sure to mention it. Um, so I did harp on websites briefly, but um, the thing that has compelled me to listen to podcasts the most is people who actually think about the fact that it's not just like putting things out there and hoping someone will find it, but actually actively activate, actively advocating for their own show. By all means, advocate for other shows too while you're advocating for yourself, but like make sure that you talk about your show. And when I say that, it's everywhere. It's when you meet somebody, it's when you email someone having it in your email signature, um, it's if you're doing social media either personally or as a brand, like those things. Like it's all very small day-to-day -day maintenances <laughs> of having something. Um, but that, to me, as I am seeing what kinds of shows are out there and where they are going, that is a signal to me that you're serious about your own growth. Um, even if you can't reach a lot of people yet, you're at least starting to establish yourself as a person who is producing things regularly. Um, I can't speak for any publications because I don't really write for that many of them beyond sometimes Bella Collective and occasionally once upon a time for Salon, but people who are already helping themselves were the easiest ones to be able to help more. So that's my Meaning, whole take. Like, a lot of people will pitch you guys at Bella Collective, like, hey, we have a new episode, or hey, like just being active. I'm gonna just point at Ashley over there in the corner, or Galen or Dana, wherever they are. Um, yeah, so just like, I'm, I'm not the person to pitch at the Bella Collective, but I will say <laughs> as someone who is working for an app that has a discoverability element, I am getting shows coming to me all of the time that are just saying, hi, I'm this show. And that's all I hear, and I don't know, like, I don't have time to listen. I don't know what else I need to be getting. Like, tell me anything. Tell me who you're trying to reach. Tell me what your show is about. Tell me what episode to start with. And even if I can't listen to it, I can start to pass it along to other people that I know. So, yes, I, I will, again, I'll, like, pull out 70 million because I've been so impressed with what I've been receiving from them. Every single week, a new episode comes out. Every single week, there is an email newsletter reminding me that an episode just came out. And there is more in there and like, depth and thought that is similarly present in all of the episodes. And as a result, I don't have time to listen to many things. I have listened to almost every episode of 70 Million. We love you. We love you too. <laughs> so, just like... Yeah, 70 Million. <laughs> um, sure. Um, this is just to say that um, just because you have pressed play on an... Uh, not pressed play, pressed publish on a particular episode, you're not done. I'm sorry to tell you this. I know there's a lot of work that goes into making a podcast, but having a plan either as you are creating the thing or after you've published it, like you should have at least a week on either side of your hitting publish button that is really heavily focused on making sure that that particular episode, this newest thing that you've made, the 
thing that you are putting your energy toward is getting out into the world in as many possible ways as you have access to. So I know it's hard, like I'm gonna caveat that by saying like, it's great for me to say all of this, but also many of you are working by yourselves. Um, this is where like your partnerships and friendships are really helpful. And I'm gonna put in like a serious plug for anyone who works for or with an educational institution there's a very good chance that you have people in your community who can help you do this. As a former communications office person, I loved it when people came to me and said, I just did this. Here's why it's important, here's what was great about it, like, can you help me? Again, helping people who are helping themselves, just being on a podcast episode was not enough for us. Like, if we found it out there in the world, it was much harder to figure out what we are going to do with it than someone coming to us and saying, hey, I was a guest on this show, this is their audience, here's how you can listen to it, here's all the other pieces of that. So. If any of you work at educational institutions or like have podcasts that are connected to them, I'm more than happy to help you figure out how to navigate your communications teams. Like that is the thing that I used to do. <laughs> Does anybody else have a comment about yeah, like, how you deal with press? I just want to jump in quick. Um, I think what you said is great and I, I agree with everything. I think one other thing that you should really tap into is your own audience itself. Um, we have three yes. shows with like fan bases that are unbelievable, are active on social like crazy. and. Honestly, I think there is a, an idea, at least from, from a network standpoint, that we get a lot of coverage, a lot of networks do, but we had two shows in IndieWire, Humble Brag, um, I'm just kidding. Uh, so, and we did, and, honest, and honestly, we did, we did nothing. We didn't reach out to IndieWire or anything. It was 100% because of their fans, um, those shows, because we're on an audience growth panel. Um, our blank check and Mission to Zix, if anyone listens to those, but um, their fan bases are constantly talking about them, constantly sharing fan art, constantly engaging with them on social. They're constantly talking to them too, and they've really built communities that have allowed them to kind of gain attraction and, and find ways to get into press coverage. And uh, you know, blank check especially gets featured on a lot of things, that, and we're thankful for that. And that's honestly because of the fan base that they've created. So, um, you know, just like, Everyone is kind of echoed here. Make sure that you are, have the content that people want to listen to. Make sure that you have a presence on web. Make sure you can, people can find you. But the most important thing is making sure that you're talking to your audience. It seems like something that you might not be able to make time for. But if you retweet somebody that's a fan of your show, you're, they're a fan of you. So they're going to be, you're almost like a pseudo celebrity. They're going to be very excited about that. And that's more of a reason that they're going to share your stories and your, and your artwork and the other fans. And you're creating communities on, on Reddit and all these other places that are just going to bring your show up to another level. And then they're, those, IndieWire, we'll just keep using them. Um, they're going to not want to miss that momentum and want to make sure that they're talking about your show. So it's a lot of work. And again, uh, you know, in this, in this room, there's a lot of independent podcasters that are doing it by themselves, but your fan base are your biggest advocates, and they're going to market like crazy for you. So I, I would just wanted to add that. Yeah. yeah um, I, um, well, I'll say, as you know, kind of the representative of like the really small, scrappy show, um, I slid into a lot of DMs. <laughs> like, I, I, I got on Twitter and I started tweeting at anybody who might be interested in in the show um and you know how I did just, you do that like what did you talk about yeah that's so like i honestly like just at like hey i've got the show here's the website yeah. like it, it was really you know hey interested in art history like you know and you know like you it's like dating i mean you know it's like <laughs> 99 is. times out of 100 like nobody responded but then you you know, get that one like it just, <laughs> you know it it was amazing how much <laughs> <laughs> um 
That's a little bit too much personal. <laughs> um, no, but like it, it was actually really incredible how every now and then somebody would say, oh, I found you on Twitter because of that, you know, kind of doing that work. I saw what other shows did and I copied it. Yeah. You know, I tried to just, I, I actually got, um, I was at the PRX holiday party, which I had some, I don't even think I got invited to that year. I just went with a guest, as a guest, somebody. And uh, I happened to be, it was the year that Leonard Cohen had just died and we were all singing hallelujah and we were all sharing lyrics because there weren't enough copies and the woman that I was sharing lyrics with happened to be the host of an arts show on NHPR. And I recognized her name and I said, hey, I, you know, like we, I, I was that one who was adding harmonies, you know, because I sing and, and here's my card and we should get in touch. And three weeks later I was recording uh, on her show. So it was like any opportunity. I don't know where this little like backbone came from because I hate asking people for money. I hate asking people, you know, I, I never thought I would be a good self-promoter, but I, going back to the content, I believed in the content. I felt like I had a good show and I really wanted it out there. And I, I got a thousand business cards and I just showered the community with it, with them. Um, I left, I went on a tour of NPR and I like, in DC, and I would just kind of leave cards here and there. Um, you know, I mean, I don't think anything happened, but maybe someday I'll get a call that, you know, somebody found a card. Like, I just, I became really shameless, and it, and the word shameless started to turn into strategic. You know, it was like at first I stopped, you know, I stopped feeling bad about myself, and I kind of turned it into, you know, I, I am my own marketing department, and this is part of the, the deal if I'm gonna get people listening to this show. And then you get one mention and that leads to another mention and you know, suddenly I got a write up in Wired and that was thrilling. Yeah. And it changed things, you know? It's like suddenly, because I had a really niche show, um, you know, unfortunately, I'm gonna be on a panel later, facilitating a panel later today on arts podcasts and a few of us kind of came around the same time and it was pretty clear that, you know, if, if Art Curious gets a write up, I'm not getting that write up because it's such a niche business to be doing art history podcasts. And so you kind of, you recognize like your community, but also your competition and you know, how to kind of navigate that. And, and I think we all still felt like the, the tide was lifting all of us. Um, but yeah, just, just shamelessly promoting yourself all the time. Okay. And you were writing some notes. Oh, no, I was just writing, I love the phrase shameless, like, promotion turns strategic, because it does connect to how you were talking about experimentation, mm -hmm. that you have to at least try something, and if it doesn't work, you, like, reassess and go on. At least you tried it. Yeah, and I think that's, like, one of the things that's really, like, I have been amazed by, and the number of things that have come out, especially in the last two years since I started working at Radio Public, is just the the breadth of things that are happening in the podcast world and how people are thinking about who those things are for. Um, the, uh, I must say, I do not make a podcast, so I have no idea how hard the thing that I'm about to say is. But as one is making something, thinking about who that thing is for and how it is going to be felt and heard by them does help with marketing your show. So it is knowing your content, but it is also very much knowing like, who is going to feel this? Like, what do they need to know? What, how are they going to find out about this? That's like, to me, it's always in the back of my head whenever I'm making anything, and I know it's not necessarily like a natural trait for everybody, but it's been like a, a question that I've asked of many, many people who are like on their very early stages of either like 
figuring out if they're going to make a show, they have just launched their show, is figuring out, like, who is it for? Like, just asking yourself that question every time you make an episode, not even just your show broadly, but for every episode, there is somebody who will love, 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 love that particular thing, and it's figuring out how you're going to speak to them, where, whether it be via email or Twitter or Instagram or walking over to their house and saying, I think you would like this. Maybe don't do that one. It'd be a little creepy. Depends on the neighborhood. <laughs> it does depend on the neighborhood. But it's the kind of thing where, like, I used to work on a college campus. Posters are everything. Yeah. It is entirely possible that, like, your local coffee shop is a place to talk about your podcast. So, Creative anyways. ideas. Sure. I have all of them, apparently. <laughs> so we've been talking a lot about growing a podcast vis-a-vis numbers and sort of a bigger audience. But I feel like that's maybe too narrow of a way to think about what is success for a podcast. And I, I was curious um, for you guys to talk a little bit about like how have you seen people define success and audience development in different ways? Um, yeah, I could go ahead. I can start it off. Um, you know, I think uh, if there's one thing that we have reiterated over and over again, it's content. And so it really depends on when you're making your podcast, what is your objective? So is your objective to make a living off of your podcast or is your objective to educate, uh, you know, your fellow beekeeper society for, uh, you know, for a, a bi-monthly or, you know, every month you put out a podcast for your society. If you can reach all of those people within your society, that's a success. So it really depends on what you're trying to achieve. If you're trying to, um, if you're trying to make a living off it, then you're going to have to hustle. You're going to do a lot of what all of these people have said. And it's not easy. It's going to take some time. But I think one of the easiest things is to create a podcast about things that you know, that you're familiar with. You know the content. You're passionate about the content. And that will always show through. And that is what really drives people to your podcast. Even though, you know, a logo will help, cross-promotion will definitely help, but, you know, how, how many of us have been turned on to podcasts because our friends post something on social media saying, you know, new podcast, go. <laughs> and everybody chimes in with 10 to 15 new podcasts. And word of mouth is huge. And if you can affect those people, you're going to affect everybody. So in that part, you would be a success as well. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Yeah, I think it's just you have to kind of define it yourself. It's, I'm just going to basically what Nathan took the words right out of my mouth. It's, it's based on what you're trying to achieve. If you're trying to achieve a huge success, then, then yeah, you're going to have to hustle. You're going to have to do everything that we've been talking about plus more. And, and, but I think that if you are looking to reach 500 people and it continues to grow from there, I think that depends on what you want to say. You know, I think that there are shows that have a thousand listens and are doing great and they're very happy with the content they're putting out there and there's shows that are doing a million listens and they have to kind of go into the studio and they have to do another episode. So it's really what you're achieving and what you want to get out of it as opposed to like, oh, I'm going to do the next big podcast and that's kind of, I would say success driven by metrics is probably a failing proposition. I would say make sure, again, I know I keep saying this, but content is king. And it's going to be something that's going to drive you and drive your passion to make you want to continue to do it. And I, I think that is more of a success and that will help you want to promote the show and want to make it grow. Um, I will say just one thing around metrics that like, I don't want to utter the word Apple charts here, but I feel like I have to right now. <laughs> going to go into that. Okay, great. I just want to like put in a small plug for meaningful metrics. Just thinking about like, what are you trying to accomplish with your show and how are you going to get there? Um, again, I came from the 
like strategy world before this and now. Um, there's something called smart goals. I don't know if you know about these, just like look them up after this. And it is figuring out how to make strategic, measurable, actionable, something, something, and I've lost both of them. Um, but like actually like helping put constraints around the thing you're trying to do, which is I'm trying to grow my podcast is like an excellent sentence, but I'm trying to grow my podcast by doing this, by this date for this particular group is a much more um, specific version of how this could work. So I, again, like this, they, there will be numbers involved, but the numbers around that particular goal is setting yourself up for some frameworks of where you can start to put your time or energy or money um, to help you get to the thing you're trying to do. Yeah, I, I define success by three phone calls that I get after every episode I release. One is from my dad, who is a journalist and who will, and a professor, but, but as a journalist, he will tell me if my argument worked. You know, like that's what I'm waiting. I'm waiting for that call. I'm waiting for, you know, maybe an email from my, uh, from my advisor in grad school, my art history advisor, who will, you know, who doesn't understand podcasting and doesn't really get it and thinks that, you know, like, where are all the footnotes? You know, like there's, it's that kind of academic, you know, if she says that was a really beautiful way of putting it, then like, you know. And the third is my mom, who's an artist. And she'll say that I that she saw something new in the art that she does because of learning a little bit about the history. And all three of those conversations feel like this is why I do this. And I feel like the metrics themselves, they'll work themselves out somehow. I mean, I know this is about audience growth, but like that, <laughs> that piece of it feels like it's about the content and it keeps me honest about the content, that that's what really, really matters and that as long as there's something good that it will get, it will, you know, get put in the right hands or, or as many hands as possible because it means that I'm reaching, you know, I didn't, I didn't go into this trying to reach any one audience. I was like, everybody has that, you know, like everybody could learn about art It's history. also code for nobody. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I'm glad I didn't talk to you two and a half years ago. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it's like that's who I've started to realize my audience is. You know, students who want to learn more about this stuff and need, a little, need like little cliff notes and professors who use them as teaching tools and artists who listen in their studios as they're making art and then just like people who like a good argument who tend to be people who listen to podcasts. Um, you know, like those, those are my, those are the, the, the three calls and that's how I know that like it was a good episode. Um, so we've been talking a lot about uh, reaching people who are already kind of listening to podcasts, like, and, uh, and though Edison Research has saying that podcast is growing, it's still kind of a, a very small sandbox. And I'm wondering what techniques or what things you have seen to reach people who aren't sort of in the sandbox already, but who are maybe, could get in. Um, what, what have you seen podcasters do, or what have you done yourselves or with your networks um, to reach people who aren't, you know, on their I, Apple or whatever, Android, whatever, Stitcher, whatever, a lot of whatevers. Um, I guess I could start this one off. Uh, so I think that is a very tough proposition, uh, number one. Um, every, so being a part of a, a larger network, I have the luxury of having relationships with Apple, Spotify, all the major platforms. 
if there's one thing I try to impart on them every time that I talk to them, it's what are you going to do to educate more of the people that already have your platform but are not listening to podcasts? I think one of the biggest missed opportunities, well, maybe I shouldn't say this. Just go ahead. So nobody tweet <laughs> about friends. this. But, uh, you know, if you think about, uh, especially in the U.S., Apple has, you know, um, tens if not hundreds of millions of devices in people's hands and the money that they've put behind uh, actually trying to educate the, the populace of people who own their devices on podcasts is very minimal. And that is something that they could do very easily. So, sorry Steve. Um, <laughs> the other, Steve Wilson, podcaster. Um, so the, uh, the other thing too is, um, you know, uh, if anyone is familiar with this, uh, How Stuff Works was recently acquired by iHeartMedia. So this is something I feel like we're going to see more of, where um, media companies see an opportunity to really grow an audience uh, through putting more of How Stuff Works content within uh, the iHeartRadio stations across the US. We're super excited about that, um, especially trying to get, uh, I mean, we announced uh, the next season of Atlanta Monster, which will just be called Monster, uh, will actually be broadcast first on iHeart radio stations. So what we're hoping is that, you know, it will be a part, it, I mean, it, as with anything, any adoption, it always involves education. Um, I mean, I was, <laughs> I was at a bat mitzvah uh, a month ago and was talking to the bat mitzvah's grandmother <laughs> about what I now do in Atlanta. And she's like, oh, what's a podcast? And her sister, pulls out her phone, is like, oh, I listen to Fresh Air, I listen to, and so a lot of it, you know, even though you might think, well, they don't get it, uh, she just showed you that she got it. So mm -hmm. a lot of it, again, is going to be word of mouth, you know, it's going to be everywhere from word of mouth all the way to, you know, potentially all of these networks getting together because a platform hasn't stepped forward and said, okay, we're gonna come together and we're gonna put aside some money and we're gonna try and educate the masses on how we can convert you to listen. Mm -hmm. So I think that's somewhat of the larger approach on, yeah. on what we've been thinking. And I'm gonna give a bottom up example that I totally love, which is um, a woman who does a TV history podcast um, moved into like a new like neighborhood, learned that there was a book group of people who were like her exact target audience. And the first time she went asked if like people listen to podcasts and all, I'm like, well, I think I know what that word means, but I don't actually know how they work. And she looked, she like, filed this away in the back of her head and then um, came to the meeting ne the next time with her laptop and like walked everyone through the process of listening to a specific episode of her show. Um, and I'm gonna put in the radio public plug, which is the only reason why I know that this happened, is that the um, her show page on the web allowed her to text the show to every single person that was there just by typing in their phone number into a web page, which is like, I don't know, I use this thing all the time. <laughs> Again, shameless plug. Um, but it meant that she got her show and a very specific episode of her show into the hands of 20 people that absolutely were the right audience for her show and had zero idea of how to actually get to it. So I think, mm -hmm. again, going back to knowing your content and knowing who it is for, um, sometimes it's physically putting yourself in the room with the exact group of people that you're looking for. So just to throw out a couple of places that that might happen, um, your student lounge on your college campus, a coffee shop, 
Right. Dropping by, um, visiting an old professor and like saying like, hey, I'd love to like come visit your class one day and also talk about where and how your work fits into my work and like we can get everybody here listening. Like it is like, as, it sounds very small, but if you are the first podcast that somebody listens to, you will forever be their first podcast that they listen to, which will be the best marketing you will ever have yeah. for your show. Yeah, like, they don't know yet that they could be listening to anything else. Yeah, like, they know your show. <laughs> so whenever, you know, they'll go through your whole catalog, and they'll, you know, ooh, new episode. Like, yeah. you know, like, I was with This American Life in 2005. You know, like, yeah, that was exactly. the one. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not above take. You know, I, I work with a lot of people in my job in corporate finance, which I think actually the, the the connecting point is that that gave me the backbone. I was used to being around a lot of people who just had no problem talking about money and talking about themselves, and uh, they're <laughs> very nice people. But you know, it was just like, hey, I can do that too. Why not? Um, but yeah, the number of them who say that they're really excited to watch my blog is. <laughs> appalling and so I will take their phones and show them the podcast app that you know sorry Apple but you know but I will show them the app and say here it is search for the lonely palette hey you're hey you're a thing yes I am here Oop. you know subscribe and it just kind of like I do that a lot and that is, I mean, I, I wish I had more of a, a strategic plan for how to actually get the show into hands of people who don't, you know, it's really, a, you know, one person at a time. Yeah. But I do that a lot. I know, just to step into what you were both saying, mm -hmm. so um, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, so she's an author as well. Um, when she does her press tours, she prints out a guide on how to listen to her podcast That's awesome. so on the front it says here's my new book on the back now listen to happier with Gretchen Rubin cool. and here's how you do it so I mean everybody anyone who is smart about it is going to do something like that it's shameless self-promotion yeah. I do it a lot with people's uh, Amazon Echo like just <laughs> you know, like just walk just into say, their room play yeah. this episode yeah. um, so I wanted to leave some time for questions if anybody had questions um, raise your hand I'll come with two with the mic. Thank you. Uh, building on that last question, actually, I mean, looking around the audience, I think if the podcast is a bell curve. We're all sitting on the top generationally, Gen X, maybe younger boomer, older millennial. And you were just talking about how you get probably more of the boomer generation. But um, just from what I gather, millennials are more diverse, maybe not as interested in subscription. How do you, how do you skew young to get your stuff? That's, I, for, for my network, it's just all about, again, it's about content. I don't think, I think the more you try to reach a specific audience, the more uh, opportunity you have for failure because you shouldn't be creating anything for anyone except yourself. And so um, that's really, you know, like we've always said, content is king, but it's gonna be a much harder, uh, it's gonna be much harder for you if you're trying to create content for a specific audience. I mean, you know, we've, we've done branded content podcasts that we thought were going to be super huge hits because they had a celebrity and they had, you know, it was around this subject. Mm -hmm. But honestly, like if, you know, Stuff to Blow Your Mind is like our weird science po uh, podcast. And if you just have them, um, interview a geneticist about something, it's going to get, you know, hundreds of thousands more downloads than if we tried to do
branded content um, podcast about the same sort of thing with celebrities talking about it. So I would say, you know, especially from, from my point of view, it's, it's all about the content and the audience, you know, will, you know, across all generations will come to it if there's an interest in it. I will also just say, having done the um, uh, marketing, content marketing, content strategy for like high school students, um, their ability to sniff out ungenuineness is <laughs> probably more so than all of the rest of us put together, which is again, going back to the content and why you're making it, is if you don't feel it and you are not conveying that through what you're saying, there's no way they're gonna listen. Um, and not to like speak for all of the young people who are out there in the world of like, getting to podcasts, but I think the, the realness factor and the relevance factor is probably more so than anything else for that particular group. So um, it's a hard thing if you're not in that particular audience to know how to reach them, but I think the feeling that you can convey around the reason why you care and the reason why you feel that it's important can really help you. And keep the episodes short. <laughs> Short's great. Like just a hot <laughs> tip, like people don't listen for an hour anymore. When what is short? Um, what did Michael Barbaro say? Like 22 minutes? Like that's the I, optimal? I mean, you know, I don't know if that's, I don't know how long that's going to be. Because, you know, it's like people would rather listen to two episodes of something than an hour or something. I think that's kind of the, like, I know I feel that way, at least. I feel like I've accomplished more by listening to two episodes of a short show. Hi, we have a podcast called Ashes Ashes. Uh, we do have a website, it's ashesashes.org. <laughs> a plus, man, A plus. <laughs> I took notes right here. So. But the question is, we're considering doing a Patreon as a revenue source, but I'm curious, how useful is that in terms of just general um, discoverability, if at all? Um, Go ahead. Please. I think it depends, honestly. Um, I think that goes back to your fan base. If the fans are willing to support you financially, they're probably going to be willing to support you in the show's growth. So I think it's about during the show asking people to rate and review, asking them to share it on social, tweet things out or, or share things on, on social that they're going to want to share. Maybe it's an extension of a show. Maybe it's a bonus episode that you put on Patreon and people are going to you know say, oh my God, the stuff they're putting out daily on Patreon is something you really have to check out. And I think that's just going to lead to the larger narrative and then coming back to your show overall. Um, I would say that's not going to be a, a silver bullet, but you know I think that if you have the proof of concept that your fans are there and they really are passionate about your show enough to support you again financially, I think that that shows that they're probably going to go another step beyond that and help support you when you're looking for for growth in whatever way you think that's the best way to go about it. Yeah, Patreon is is a living thing. It's like a plant. Like if you don't tend to it, it dies. Nobody like it is. It's one thing to push out an episode and have people care, but you really have to push the Patreon piece also. And I think that that, like I see so many people who I think have really successful shows and then I go to their Patreon page and they have like five patrons. And it's like, how is that possible? Like, I thought everyone would want to support you. And it's like, you need to push it in front of people's faces. And I was, I actually invested a lot into um, into Patreon before I rolled it out. I got a lot of swag. I had like 100 mugs in my basement and, and stickers and just, I, I, did it, I did it the, you know, the only way I knew how, which was like the public radio pledge drive kind of way. <laughs> to, you know, I have tote bags. Like I just, I really wanted to make it clear that at the very, be like that I knew that this was an investment for me and that the overhead piece 
was about getting getting it out there because you know even if you lose you know a thousand bucks on swag you know kind of lose it at first that's still like a hundred mugs out there in people's hands and who can you know it's like it really took money to make money on patreon and I'm really glad I made that investment because and also another thing people make their tiers too small um, so there's this weird thing on Patreon where because people feel, because we're all artists and people feel weird about asking for money, it's like, you know, well, if I really support your show, like, you know, $2, but if I really, really support your show, it could be $5, you know, I mean, it's like, I uh, have a $50 to, you know, maybe there are people out there who will pay you 50, 25, 50, a hundred dollars an episode. And, you know, you're not going to find them right away and you'll get that email randomly and it'll make your day. But... I, I think that people have a tendency to really sell themselves short on these kinds of things, and that it's, you know, just put it out there. It, it doesn't cost you anything to have a $50 tier, and then someday someone will click on it and have good stuff, you know, to kind of send out to them and make it feel like it's worth their while. If people do this thing with like pledge drives, I know I do, where it's like, oh, I'm totally happy to support, you know, BUR for $5 a month, but like at the end of 120 bucks, I only get a cookbook. Like, <laughs> you know, like, and it's like, you know, I'm paying more than that. And it's like, no, you're paying for the radio. The cookbook is just the gift yeah. that they, <laughs> you know. And so I, I found that for myself psychologically, I wanted to give people, kind of make them feel like they were buying the swag. Mm -hmm. um, and that has actually upped my, my patron count quite a bit. In the vein of shameless promotion, we have a podcast called Seekers and Scholars at the Mary Baker Eddy Library. You should all listen to it. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm hearing what sounds to be like slightly conflicting things. One on mm -hmm. sort of the smaller ind independent like shameless promotion, put your stuff in front of people, you know, tweet things. But I'm also hearing on the larger scale that just good promotion isn't, you know, going to go. So, you know, stick with content that you like and that makes you happy. And so is there a line of over-promotion of, especially since I work at an educational uh, archives and library that, the Mary Baker Eddy Library, that we have a studio, we have a you know, marketing group, and we have to fit ourselves in with the larger branding of the institution. So can you guys talk a little bit to that audience of educational institutions and, and where we fit in for promotion? Uh, I'd be happy to try. Um, so one of the things to consider is that I don't know where your particular part of like the archives fits into the larger university picture, but um, at least in my past experience, a large institution might have their own accounts and their own like methods of communication, and then smaller parts of a university might have their own as well, that the archives might be able to speak more about your show than the university at large, but it doesn't mean that you can't do both. Um, they reach different audiences, they do different things. So that's one, just like internally where you are now. The second is going back to uh, like the cross promotion, everyone is friends in this still, that simply because it's about your archives and your particular institution, it does not mean that you can't reach out to other archives and other like similar institutions or places that do similar research to you. Um, so I would say if you feel limited by what you currently have, it's an opportunity to be more creative about who else you can reach and market with. So I mean, the other thing that I'm just gonna like put out there is even if um, you're limited by how many times a week or a month or however often the place that you work for can talk about this, 
No one is stopping you personally from doing that. Um, not that you need to be the shameless self-promoter only of your show, but there's some, like, in my mind, a little bit of opportunities for um, creative expansion that come from you and not just the place that you work for. So I don't know if that helped, but just some off-the-cuff thoughts. Sure, this is probably kind of related to what you just said, but we understand the content is king, and you know, I think we all agree. But for those of us that are the one-man band show, um, History in the Making, Ancient Greece, Athens, but for those of us that are just ourselves and we also do a full-time job, we just don't have that much time to market. So how do you prioritize that marketing when you do, if you have a limited window? Yeah. Big exhales and inhales. Um, <laughs> I mean, social media really doesn't take that much time. Like when you're, I mean, well, it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, it's very easy to just, like I have friends who are like, oh, I finally got Facebook off my phone. Like, God, I'm healthy now. And I'm like, I can't. <laughs> like, that's just, I can't do that. Like, I have to be able to, you know, get an Instagram out. Is that, oh, I sound so old. <laughs> I mean, you know, post something on Instagram every day. You know, get a tweet out. You know, just kind of keep, keep, your, keep your voice going. You know, because that's where you get the, the audience loyalty. You know, people want to hear from you. And especially when you're this kind of one-man band and you're doing something... You know, like make it clear that even though you take your content really seriously and you put a lot of energy into writing and, you know, that you're also like a fun guy and, and that people want, you know, anybody who's kind of tapping into the humor in your show, even if it's kind of, you know, subtle, like then they'll see it in, you know, it's, it's nice to take an academic study and show that it can be funny, you know, just kind of get the jokes in but also get the wit in. And I feel like social media is really designed for those little nuggets of wit that you can, you know, just kind of toss out there and just remind people that you're still there. You know, every time I publish an episode, I have like a list next to my computer of all of the websites that I need to hit, you know, upload it on Reddit, Reddit and, and get, um, you know, make sure that my MailChimp goes out and, and, you know, just kind of like just get through the slog of all of the channels that I need to reach that are kind of, you know, I like to believe now or like waiting to hear from me. And maybe that's a totally, that's like a psychological move that I need to tell myself that they're waiting to hear from me, but it makes it feel better than just kind of shouting into the void and just adding another tweet, you know? Like it just, it, that piece of it, I feel like, um, uh, you know, when, when it's just you and you have a full-time job, it's like you just have to put aside, you know, cordon off time in your day that you just do your social media blast and then put it away. And, and just real quick, because I know we have another question, but um, I'm sure I'm speaking to everyone, and they're going to roll their eyes, but if you could schedule those tweets, if you could take an hour of a week and just have, you know, schedule tweets or, or Facebook posts or, you know, Reddit's a little bit different, but if you can find time to schedule those, take an hour a week and do that and still maintain your voice, mm -hmm. then you, you can kind of have it running in the background and just make sure that, at least in my view, you're responding to your fans and things like that. Uh, related to that, I'm going to take just one step back from, from what both of them are saying and saying that just a little bit of planning will go a long way, that deciding that you're not going to do everything is also fine. Um, and for each episode, you might try something a little bit different. So, like, just throwing this out there. Um, this season of your show, dedicate yourself to making sure that your email newsletter is the best it can be. And that is the kind of thing where, like, the practice of doing it over and over again makes it less of a, like, a pressure on you. Um, or this season is when we're going to try Twitter seriously. Um, and again, the planning to me, like this is my content strategist brain just sort of like going wild right now, which is 
all of the work that you're putting into an episode can be broken up into smaller, more like modular pieces that can work on social media or email or whatever. So it's that like amazing quote that you pulled out when you were editing, you're like, this quote is amazing. That quote is like part of your Twitter plan now. Um, and like the description of your show, description of episodes, those are all things that like as individual pieces help you market yourself. Because again, when we keep on saying content is the king, it's that your content contains pretty much everything that you need already. It's just figuring out how to break it up into those pieces and get it out there into the world. So it does take time, but it's almost like shifting your, your focus a little bit while making the show that it's not only what is gonna get this thing done, but what are the most like standout amazing things from this episode that we want people to know and feel and we think will bring people in. So we have time for two more questions. Cool. Um, I'm wondering how you reach like advertisers and like if that, do you need like a certain amount of like plays that are happening or like would you recommend reaching out like before you start releasing? Like, uh, yeah. What's your show? Um, I have a show about kind of like contemporary social issues. It's called Unwind the Line. Cool. But, yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I would say, and again, we're belaboring this, but make sure the content's there, and that as you start to do it, you know, you're going to eventually find advertiser interest. Um, even you know, if you're reaching a niche audience, I think there's an advertiser out there for it. If you feel there's a really great fit, I would say make sure that you have a show out there, or even like a pilot episode that you're very happy with, it's polished, and then reach out to to a, sh a advertiser or an institution that you think might spend money with you. You kind of have to be a little shameless, right? You kind of there, there's going to be a lot of no's. I mean, me reaching out for cross promotion, I get a lot of no's, even though I'm part of a network. So, I would say make sure that you have a, a pilot or a series of episodes. You say, hey, you know, this is the stuff I'm doing. I think that this could be a great fit. A sophisticated advertiser that's part of a big conglomerate is going to want metrics and stuff like that. So that's that's the tough part of this. But you know, a niche coffee house by you or or a local advertiser um, is probably going to be somewhat interested to at least engage in a conversation, and that might lead to investment further down the line. I'm going to shamelessly plug the Bellow Collective's Podcasting 101 collection right now because there is, in fact, an entire article on how you set yourself up to actually reach out to people, um, and it's everything that Rob was just mentioning with like step by step. This is how you do this. I I would also ask yourself why you want an advertiser. Mm. Um, that's something that I don't think we're allowed to say. And <laughs> those of us no. with full-time jobs, like I freely admit, like I don't. I don't need to bring in 125 bucks from doing a 60-second spot for a product that I don't really care about, you know, um, when I make a salary at my job. You know, like, it's just, I think I started out thinking that if I had an advertiser, it's, it made me sound legit, like, like the show was bona fide. And now it's like, I feel like, first of all, 60 seconds out of 25 minutes is a lot. Like, that's actually a lot of, of real estate to give up in your show. And I also find that, you know, if you're an advertiser, like, think about it from an advertiser's perspective. Like, you want to know when your content's getting out there, like, when your product is getting shilled. And a really important piece for me, at least while I try to balance this full-time job and full-time job, like, you know, while I'm, you know, and kind of keep my sanity, like, being on somebody else's schedule is really stressful. And I actually, you know, this month I was supposed to, I was supposed to put out an episode and I couldn't. And it just didn't happen. And I, you know, like that, 
that has repercussions when you have an advertiser who, you know, but at the same time, it's like it's a hundred bucks, you know, and it's like my sanity is worth more to me than that. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I feel like until you really are at a place where you feel like this income is, is, becomes more important than your sanity, then I would say that, that a, you know, maybe not try to chase advertising to legitimize your show. Um, because it will come as your show is legitimized on its own. I, I also say that like, grants and foundation support is also really huge. Yes. I, I, I did a podcast called The World in Words about language, and we were supported by NEH. And sure, writing an NEH grant proposal sucked, but, um, <laughs> but it, was a great, it was a great source of, of funds. Yep. Um, last question. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about strategies around release schedule. Um, if it's important to get something out there every month, what kind of cadence you think is important. And then for those that are part of the networks, I just looked up both all your networks and neither of your networks have a feed of all the podcast episodes that are coming out with it. So I was just curious in terms of how you at a sort of larger level are thinking about promoting like all the different sub shows that are part of it. You want to go? You can go first. All right. Um, release schedule is really, it's, it's important. I think it's, it's, you have to hit what your fans are expecting. Now, it's not saying you can't miss a month, but that means in your next episode that you come out, you, you explain what's happening or you're engaging with that audience wherever they might find your, uh, your show or your, your, your following. So I would say that it's something you should prioritize in the beginning. It's like, I'm going to do this every Monday. If it's, a, if it's twice a week, it depends on how much information you're looking to get out there. There's very popular shows that are once a month, you know, we have Dan Carlin, who's actually going to be here, and he does like once a year, right, or twice a year, <laughs> and he gets a, a tons of listens. So I, I think it depends on what you're going to do, and make sure that you can deliver on that promise. So if you're like, I'm going to do a daily show, make sure that before you go live, you can hit those deadlines and you can hit that that uh, release schedule because I think that is important because that's what fans are going to want it. In terms of, um, I think you might have just called this out for a flaw, and you know, <laughs> um, I, I I think that because podcasting is so regular and in terms of the show's fans know when that show is coming out that we're not really at least from my view I haven't really thought about you know putting out there like when the next episode is coming out but maybe you just taught me something so yeah in terms of release schedule for us I mean it's especially for a network who when we have advertisers who expect you know delivery um, we're our network is basically based on frequency I mean stuff you should know has published an episode for the last 10 years uh, every Tuesday and Thursday. So they've never missed an episode regardless of when New Year's, you know, Hanukkah, anything falls. Uh, so for them it's very important. Uh, whereas tomorrow I totally understand where she's coming from and know that, you know, your sanity is definitely worth more than a podcast. But um, in terms of uh, the release schedule on a broad sense, I think that we look at, um, as a network, yes we have tons of great podcasts, but we feel like people connect more on the individual level than saying, hey, listen to this house, all these house stuff work yeah. podcasts. And so, like I, for, from my experience, it's much more valuable to connect with that person and know that they're going to consistently listen to stuff you should know, mm -hmm. and we make sure that they know when they look through all of the publishing that has happened over the last 10 years, they see it happens every Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, just like stuff you missed in history class every Monday and Wednesday. And so um, I get where you're coming from and in terms of, you know, if I was just starting out on a network or I had a, 
a network that was a little more dependent on the name of the network versus our individual brands, I think that's a great idea. But for us, when I tell people that I work at How Stuff Works, I either get somebody freaking out at me or they have no idea what I'm talking about. And if I say stuff you should know, I say stuff you missed in history class, then they're, oh yeah, I know that. So for me, it's, I find more value in the individual brand that is connecting to the person. Mm-hmm. Can wow. I just jump in real quick? Sure. I, just one more thing. You can also bank episodes. So if you know you're going on a trip or if you know you're gonna, it's gonna be a stressful month, yeah. try and find time to do three or four episodes so you can, so you can consistently get that release schedule out. Super quick counterpoint. Sorry. Um, Please. Just that, that I think that regularity is when you're independent. I will say this when you don't have advertisers dependent on you. When you're independent, regularity matters a lot at the beginning. I think that you can let it go as, as you go and that your audience will be there waiting for you. Um, and that's, you know, I started out on my website that I said I released every other week. I changed the website tag to say every third week. Now I just took that line entirely off. <laughs> and it's just like, you get an episode when you get one. And, you know, you get what you get and you don't get upset. Like, it just, it, it's actually been, it, it's been okay to, to make less, you know, instead of pushing out content when it wasn't, it wasn't there or I didn't have time, so. Thank you so much to everybody.